Would we uh, turn together, if you have your bulletins open, you can use that, or if you want to um, read from the uh, translation you have brought with you, I'd encourage that. Uh, there's one little difference, and I'll bring it out. I'll be reading from the 1984 translation of the New International Version, the old New <laughs> International Version, and the one that's listed in here is the Today New International Version, which is now labeled simply the NIV. You'll notice one difference. Here then the Word of God. A song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, would your spirit anoint my tongue to proclaim and our ears to hear, hearken, and act upon what you have said to us here and throughout your word. Thank you that they bring us to the cross and to the empty tomb of a Savior who has risen and coming again. May we as your people learn to act as family that we may be a beacon to the world of what family really is in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you catch it? Right in verse verse 1, didn't you? In your uh, bulletin it read, uh, when God's people live together in unity. And in the earlier translation of the NIV and many other translations, still it reads, when brothers well together in unity. Now the uh, TNIV, as I really would call it, has a, an agenda of attempting to um, remove gender distinctions from the scriptures with the intention that words that were intended to include men and women be clearly understood in the reading that it includes men and women. And I understand and appreciate that. But we also can lose something we can lose something if we're not careful in changing translation for commentary. And that really is exposition inserted as translation, in my view. Why? Well, because it makes all the difference in the world that we are brothers. Not simply in the family of God, but it's just Jesus and me, but no, <laughs> we're brothers Brothers and sisters, because that word does mean both. Brothers and sisters in the family of God. There's a lateral relationship because of the vertical relationship. And we mustn't lose that. Parents are pleased when their children are storybook. You know, they sit nicely and play nicely in the back seat of the car and they're all happy and helpful to each other and they're always encouraging and, and never fighting. And, and we just, parents here who have more than one child, is that the way it always works? <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> uh, our children are wonderful. They're all grown now. We have 
uh, 11 wonderful grandchildren, 12, but one's with God. And, uh, and uh, we're delighted in every single one of them and their uniqueness and the way they love to be together. And that's all true. And at the same time, it's not always that way. And when our kids were growing up and they love each other, they did then and they do now, but it wasn't always that way. There are times, you see, when uh, they fuss, <laughs> term my mother used to use, so I use it too. It's not in the dic Oxford Dictionary, but there it is, fuss. Uh, when they do that, parents' hearts are wrenched. I remember my wife telling about how her father rarely got agitated. But one of the times when it most wrenched his heart was when his children fussed, fought among one another. They yelled or tug of war or selfishly wanted, uh, each one wanted their own thing. It grieves the heart of a parent, the most godly among us. It grieves our heavenly father's heart when we as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ do that with each other. Now, David, Israel's shepherd king, had seen firsthand the difference unity made on the disparate and vying tribes of the Israelites. He wrote this, this song. It's in the, the not original, but very, very ancient uh, um, prologue or, or uh, uh, title to the psalm, Song of Ascents of David. And it was out of his reflection and at the impulse of the Spirit of God that David wrote the beautiful, though brief, Psalm 133 that is sung at the close of every general assembly of our Presbyterian Church in America, <laughs> a member congregation of which Christ Community Church is. Um, Sometimes it's ironic. <laughs> Sometimes the, the uh, emotions have risen <laughs> during the course of debates over issues at General Assembly, and then we all close with this psalm, and I hope it's more than lip service when we sing it. Because it's not intended to be lip service. You see, in this psalm, we learn an important theme, that unity among God's people is both pleasing to him and an evidence of his blessing. Let me say that again. If you don't get anything else, this is a sermon. I hope you won't go to sleep, but this is the message in a nutshell. Unity among God's people is both pleasing to him and an evidence of his blessing. Now let's look and see from our text why and how that's so. Notice three important principles there in your bulletin. First, that God has blessed his people. Second, that God's blessing comes through his Redeemer. And finally, that God brings refreshment to his people as they join in united worship. Now, I want us to look at each of those three briefly in turn. First, God has blessed his people. Verse 3 refers to the blessing. The blessing. Um, I had someone... Uh, at a checkout stand, say to me, have a blessed day. <laughs> and I appreciated that. I wonder, is she a Christian? Is she just using that as a cultural thing? I don't know. But we have varying common expressions of well-wishing. The most common is good luck. 
Maybe next most common is have a nice day. If you're a thespian, that is someone, an actor involved on the stage, it might be break a leg. See, because it's bad luck to say good luck, go, go figure. And, uh, or we might say to someone on a steamship as they go on a cruise, bon voyage. Well, all of them, think about it, are expressions of hope. But usually only a hope based on what Aussies would call luck. They don't believe that if you work hard, you get ahead. At least they pretend they don't believe that because they live in a land that beats you. You'd work hard and it would fall apart. And if you just put in a little effort, but things happen to fall into place for you, then it, in their parlance, it came good. And it all just depends on luck for the Aussie. And typically, and uh, the very term for their country is what? The lucky country. <laughs> the lucky country. But God's blessing is, really is, different. He doesn't depend on luck. He rather actually brings about what he declares. His blessing is effectual. How could it be otherwise? He spoke and the universe came to be. How could he not speak a blessing, a word of welfare, of good, of peace, and it not be? You see, his blessing is a sovereign pronouncement. We read in verse 3, Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am, the delivering Savior God of his people who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage into freedom. This Yahweh, this I am, this great and living one, commanded. He's self-existent, the great I am, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty, and he commands. It's a sovereign pronouncement. When the king commands, it is. Well, our kings maybe not, but that king does. The one and only king of the cosmos. And it's not only a blessing that is a sovereign pronouncement, but notice that this blessing is immutable. Verse 3, forever. Forever. Literally into everlastingness. It can't get much more forever than that. It's a special thing, the blessing of God. It's not just well-wishing. I wish someone a, I hope you have a, Nice day. I hope you have safe travel. Well, I'm hoping. God doesn't just hope. He places his hand upon us and confers that assurance. The one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. God has blessed his people, but his blessing doesn't just sort of come out of nowhere. It comes through his Redeemer, verse 2. There's a reference to Aaron now in the Hebrew. Aaron's name means enlightened one. Yes, but it's more than just being enlightened. And enlightenment or illumination is one of the works of the spirit of the living God. That's true. But Aaron is not just anyone. Aaron is the high priest of Israel, the first high priest of Israel. He is the prototype for all that would follow until the great antitype or fulfillment comes, the one whom he prefigured. The one that in his office 
he foreshadowed. Aaron is the one that prefigures Christ. And, and the word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed. And the Greek term to translate that, many of you may know, in the New Testament is Christos, which means anointed. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Lord's anointed one. Aaron is anointed, looking toward the Christ who is to come, the anointed one. And you notice further that there's a reference to Zion in, uh, in this text. Mount Zion in verse 3. Oh, where is Zion? Well, Zion, of course, is the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem was built and stood. It was David's capital. Well, it wasn't always David's capital. Did you know his first capital was a city that had been taken during the conquest by an 80-year-old comrade of Joshua? His name was Caleb. Other people were slow to take Hebron. It, that was the name of the city. It had strong walls. It was a major city, 80 years old. Follow me, boys. And he brought the Israelites in, and God gave that as a legacy to him, and he gave it in turn to his daughter and son-in-law, the first of the judges that would follow Joshua. Ah, Othniel, that's another story and another sermon. There are lots of sermons in the Word of God. Don't ever think you're going to exhaust it. You won't. I haven't begun to. But Hebron was the first capital of David after Saul, his predecessor, had been killed by the Philistines in a battle on Mount Gilboa. Saul and most of his sons, including David's dear friend Jonathan, were killed there. And some of them were heroic. Saul was no ordinary man. He had been quite a hero in his earlier reign. And Jonathan was a great warrior. God had used him at Michmash with his armor bearer to scale a cliff into the teeth of a garrison of Philistines who made the mistake of saying, let's toy with him, we outnumber him, let it, let's let him get to the top. Bad mistake for them. And, uh, and Jonathan and his armor bearer dispatched that whole platoon, that whole uh, uh, unit, and began a rout of the Philistines that day. David, I mean, and Jonathan were close friends. Jonathan knew that David would be king, but he didn't envy David. He was glad. Jonathan was no ordinary man, but he too fell. And the judgment on Saul and his family on Mount Gilboa. Now there's more we could talk about. Um, Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth. Uh, Ishbael and, and others of the family line of Saul, but that's another sermon. <laughs> the point is that David now has been anointed king by his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. Not all the others, but that one, and his capital is in a city conquered by a member of the tribe of Judah, Caleb. And that's Hebron. So his capital's at Hebron for about seven years. And then he says one day, he's attempting to capture um, the city of Jerusalem 
and uh, the Jebusites are, are occupying it. And they've resisted all the way down from Joshua's time to David's own. And he says, they, I'll make commander of chief in chief of my army the one who finds a way to capture Jerusalem. So Joab, one of David's uh, 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 mighty men among them, uh, he's never really listed as a mighty man. His brother Abishai is. But Joab um, was uh, the first to, to go up, and he, he found a way up through the drains of the, of the system and uh, into the city and was able to capture the city. And David made it his capital from that point on. And Joab became commander, commander-in-chief under, under David of the armies of Israel. That city, having become his capital now, still had no temple. The Israelites coming out of Egypt and into the time of Joshua and beyond had a tabernacle. They finally rested at Shiloh. And when the Philistines invaded and attacked, captured the Ark of the Covenant, they, burned, they came to Shiloh and burned down the tabernacle. Now, God intervened. He then judged the Philistines. The judgment on Israel included judgment on Eli and his two wicked sons, Phinehas and Hophni. And Eli was the high priest and should not have allowed his sons to be as wicked as they were. God judged the armies of Israel because of the sins of its leadership and then sent back his ark, and that's another story, rather miraculously into the land of the children of Israel. So they have their ark. They managed to have an altar. They have, uh, they can build it with stones. That's allowed. So they've got an altar, and they have the ark of the covenant, but where will they put it? They're moving it to Zion. They were careless. One of the priests tries to steady the oxen-carried ark. It's in a cart. Shouldn't have been. Should have been carried by poles by the priests themselves. And they didn't do that, and it starts to fall off. And, and uh, Uzzah, the priest, reaches out to steady it. And God smites him dead. David's bothered by this. And he's afraid to bring the ark any further. And well, he should be. That ark has, is holy to the Lord. Very holy, most holy. And God has said how it's to be carried. So they turn it aside into the house of Obed-Edom nearby. And it's not bad luck, you see. That's not bad luck. It's holy. There's a difference. Philistines thought it was bad luck. You know, it's associated with the God of the... Israelites send it back, it's bad luck. No, no, it's not bad luck. God blesses the household of Obed-Edom. And so worship begins to be held near there. The ark's there, there's an altar. But the temple of the Lord is not yet built. David wants to build one. God says, not you. You represent war. You're a man of war. I commanded you to. It's not that you sinned in that. But that I want someone who's 
name will be peace and his reign will, will typify peace and it will be your son Solomon whose name means shalom, peace. So it would be Solomon, David's son, that would build that temple, a glorious and great temple, no more a tabernacle to move around, but God set his name forever on Mount Zion. Now, remember, David's writing this long before Solomon is born, let alone builds the temple. And early in his reign, after he'd taken Zion, his capital, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, he writes this psalm. And it's called a psalm of ascents, that his people are coming up, literally up in elevation as they ascend to Mount Zion, to the place where God meets with his people, and his people gather to worship. The temple's not there yet. But two things are there. The first thing that's there is that this is a part of a, a group of, of uh, hills that are a part of one mountain, um, not just range, but uh, uh, mountain complex that together constituted what the Old Testament calls Moriah. Mount Moriah. Oh, rings a bell for some of you. Genesis chapter 22. When God says, Abraham, you've done all these things. You've learned all these lessons. You've trusted me. I've blessed you. You've strayed and I've chastened you. But now, I want you to take the child of promise through whom I have said the promise will come. And I've told you that all nations in your seed will be blessed. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, whose name means laughter and brings you joy, take him to a mountain I will show you and offer him up as a sacrifice unto the Lord. How would you have responded to that? I can't imagine. Now remember that God had not yet through Moses forbidden human sacrifice. It's not that God changes, he doesn't. But I want you to feel that. Early the next morning we're told he wastes no time with the wood he's prepared and cut. He takes his son and a couple of servants and a donkey to carry the wood and, and some fire with them his knife and off they go three days he looked over that donkey at his son three days knowing that at the end of the journey what will come now the book of Hebrews tells us that he believed that God would keep his promise even if he went through obedience to commandment of God he believed the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that God was able to raise his son Isaac from the dead and figuratively speaking the writer of Hebrews says he did just that you remember the story he built the altar put the wood on it, bound his son, placed him on the altar, and raised that knife in the air, and it was only then that God calls out and stays his hand. And God says, I, now I know that you put me first. You believe me. You love me most. Now, doesn't God know all things? Of course he does. But there's, there's that word know again. 
the experiencing of it as it's lived out before the nations and in history. Lived out before the people of God. And God provided a ram. You remember? Horns caught in the altar. I mean, and the uh, brush nearby. And Isaac had said, here's the fire, here's the wood, where's the uh, offering in God? And Abraham had said to his son as they were going up the mountain, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide the offering, my son. And he did. And so that place is called Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide even to this day, we're told. And it was there on Mount Moriah, there, Mount Zion, that that took place. I need to explain something. God didn't change. Don't be offended at what I'm going to say. It's not that human sacrifice is wrong. I'll say that again so it may offend you. It's not that human sacrifice is wrong. Did he say that? Yes. It's that the wrong human sacrifice is wrong. You see... Isaac wasn't too good to offer, too precious to give, the one, his only son, the one he loved. No, he wasn't good enough. He had his own sins. He couldn't be the sacrifice for another. It took another incarnate as one of us, the one who came from the midst of the Jordan, having been baptized in the Spirit of God, descending on him as a dove, and the voice from heaven, from God the Father, says you, to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It took one like us to take our place upon the altar, the altar in this case of the cross, And it was at that very mountain on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, that later in his life, having sinned against uh, the Lord in his, his uh, uh, adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his, his loyal soldiers, and covered it up by having that soldier put to death uh, in a way that didn't look too obvious, having him sent back with secret orders to Joab, his commander-in-chief, to put him in a place where it would be hottest in battle in a faraway city. Not so far away. David should have been there, but he wasn't. And he said to Joab in a secret message, give a signal that everyone knows but Uzziah, his faithful soldier, so they'll retreat and leave him there surrounded. And so Uzziah was killed. This was David, man after God's own heart. He could do that, yes. And whatever you've done today, as you sit here and your mind thinks back over your life, whatever it is, however black, however wretched, however bloody, I can tell you it is not too great for the God who forgives David to forgive you. How does he do it? Well, in David's day, he said, I'll give you a choice. You can have seven years or three years of famine or three months of being chased by your enemies or three days of plague. David says, I don't know what to choose. You're merciful. I trust your choice. And God took the shortest 
chastening, most immediately severe. And tens of thousands of people died by plague throughout Israel because of David's sin. Judgment on the nation, following judgment on its leadership. And the destroying angel stood on Mount Zion on a, a high place overlooking the city of David, Jerusalem, with his sword outstretched toward Jerusalem, as he had done with jo in Joshua's day, with his sword outstretched toward Jericho, which would be utterly destroyed in the time of Jer Jericho, in the time of, of Joshua. David, brokenhearted, said, It's my sin, O God. My sin. And he falls to his knees and he prays, Lord, <clears throat> let it fall on me and my posterity. And God commands that angel to stay the sword and sheath it. And Jerusalem is spared. And the location where, where the, the angel was standing and where David was when he saw him and fell to his knees in prayer, that location was a threshing floor by one of the former inhabitants of that city, Jerusalem, a Jebusite whose name, whose name was Arana. David said, I'll buy your field, I'll buy your, the location, I'll buy your uh, your threshing floor, I'll buy your oxen and ox cart. Oh no, says Arana, I'll give them to you. David says, I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. Understand, he's not saying, I have to work to be saved. He's saying that my thank offering response should be from my heart and from my life. And so he buys it for the full price. He builds an altar, uses the wood from the cart, and the bullock says the offering, and there, on that location, the Lord smelled a sweet-smelling savor and turned his wrath from Israel. And there, in that very place, Solomon would build the temple. And there, just outside that temple wall, Solomon's wall, it would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, yes, several centuries later, Jerusalem fell, and it would be thrown down, but there would be a second temple raised up as the Jews returned from, the Hebrews re people, the Israelite people returned from their exile in Babylon. Uh, they would come back and in the time of Zerubbabel will rebuild the temple, the second temple, a very small temple compared to Solomon's, but the temple just the same. And in its place, Herod the Great, a usurper king, come to the throne centuries later and build a much more imposing temple. So much more than it made Solomon's temple look small. What stones, the disciples of Jesus would say. See how magnificent, and Jesus said, every one of these great stones will be thrown down. Not one will be left on top of another. That judgment would come one generation, 40 years after Calvary. Ah, oh, but Calvary. You see, Jesus went to the cross to bear his people's sin, that the judgment and wrath of God against the sin of God's people might be utterly satisfied so that he might be just and the justifier of those who come 
to him through Christ. And where was that cross? On a rocky knoll outside that temple wall. We call it the place of the skull. Golgotha. It has another name. Calvary. That's Mount Zion. That's where the peace of God is promised. Wherever we are, we come to God through that Mount Zion, not the physical place, but what happened there. The person, our champion, our substitute, our savior, who did it for us. Have you come to the place in your life where you recognize that you can't do part of it even? You don't need someone to help you do the rest. You need someone who will do it for you, what you can't do for yourself. That all you can do with your life is a thank you, a valid, legitimate, authentic thank you lived out from your life, but a thank you nonetheless. We don't partially pay the tab to God's justice. It's infinite. We can't. Anything other than Christ is an abomination to the Lord. It would be like saying, uh, we want another human sacrifice. It'll be part of me. I can't do that. It demeans the holiness and perfection of the only one. There is one God, the scripture says, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But notice here, that the Spirit of God who anoints his mediator is also outpoured upon the whole of his body. There's the oil in verse 2 that flows down the beard and then the garment, the collars of the garment. It's a, a, a figurative picture that it's not just the head, but the whole that is anointed. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we read these words. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And elsewhere we're told Jesus Christ is the head, and we as believers are his body spiritually. And you see, the Spirit of God who does anoint us as the body of Christ also brings unity into the family of God. Verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren, yes, that means cistern too, <laughs> when brothers and sisters, the family relationship, yes, it's the family of God, but the emphasis in that word is that we're in the family together as brothers and sisters, belonging to each other with responsibility to one another. There have been a lot of powerful empires through history. I love to read world history, especially to read it alongside what God is doing in salvation history, redemptive history in the Bible. What's going on in China during the early Han Dynasty leading up to the coming of Christ? What's going on in Africa, sub-Sahel Africa, during the time, for example, of the exile? What's going on in those places? One of the things I notice is that there, there are empires which fall very quickly after lasting a rather long time. They're put together over time gradually, and they fall apart quickly. A number of them. 
I can think of <clears throat> King Xerxes of Persia. Um, he had 120 satrapies, we're told. <laughs> Very powerful, expansive empire that went from the Bosporus, the Straits of the Bosporus, and Egypt, all along the Levant, all the way to the borders of China, down into the uh, northern Indus Valley of India. A great empire. And it collapsed under the attack of Alexander of Macedon. Alexander the Great. Uh, the, then we think of uh, others as well. There's, uh, there's uh, the Sassanid dynasty in Persia that fell quickly to Muslim Arabs. Aztecs in Mexico fell to Cortes, the conquistador, and likewise the Incas in Peru to the conquistadors of Spain. Great empires and they fell quickly. But you notice, one of the things that I see as I look at those empires is they fell. In more cases than not, they didn't so much fall from conquest from without or a new uh, weapon of warfare or, or tactic. They primarily fell from within first. They had rotted out inside. There was disunion. There was uh, rivalry, hatred. Those empires were corrupt. They were ready to fall. You know, Jesus himself said that a house divided cannot stand. He also repeatedly stressed the importance of unity among those who called him Lord. But here's the catch. Mere human effort and aspiration cannot bring about that kind of unity. Just can't and keep it. It takes the spirit of the living God. In Proverbs chapter 30, we're told there are four things that are small, but they're very, very wise. The last of them, which means it's the consummate point out of the four, says locusts have no king, yet they march together in ranks. Now, if some of you have been in, in parts of the world, Africa or other places, I've been in Kenya, where there's been a plague of locusts actually emerge out of the the dry desert lands and just sweep across. It's amazing to watch them. And it's true, locusts don't have a queen locust like you have a queen bee or a queen ant. Uh, there's no one individual that, whose destruction means the destruction of that whole community. Nope. But the interesting thing is, neither do flies. But if you took 10 million flies and put them under a jar big enough to hold them in the middle of the outback of Australia and lifted the jar, you'd have 10 million flies going 10 million different directions. <laughs> you do that with locusts, you know what happens? Yep, they move all together. They don't have soldier locusts saying, get back in line. They don't have that. What makes them do it? We say, instinct. Oh, come on. What is instinct? Well, it's part of the DNA. Oh, come on. It's how the Creator has programmed these creatures of His. And it's an image of what the Spirit of God does as He writes His Word on our hearts, which is what the Scripture says He does for those who love Him. And in the New Testament, we're talked, told about the work of God's Spirit among us. It's, it is time and again... Um, 
connected with the unity that only he can give. Well, finally, God brings refreshment to his people as they join in united worship. Verse 1, live together, we're told. All of life is sacred to God. And that's why our relationships in every context, every context, affects our relationship with God. Yet, but that's especially true with regard to the gathering of his people in united worship, which is the focal point of God's people's lives. You see, our people, our God's people, we as his people, are a fragrant offering to the Lord. Verse 2, the precious oil. That's a good definition of the Hebrew word, precious. You see, it's both rare and fragrant. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, verses 1 and 2, we read, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, listen, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes these words. <clears throat> Sorry, here we are. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere, what? The fragrance of the knowledge of him. A fragrant offering to God. Do you know God delights in you? As you come to him with all your faults, acknowledging them, pleading Christ and desiring him to have his way and you conforming you conforming me into a reflection that's more accurate and authentic of the one who by the Spirit of God dwells in our lives and shines forth from us. Finally, his Spirit brings the water of life to refresh his people in their worship and service to him. The dew of Hermon, verse 3. Dew of Hermon, you know that's the source of the Jordan? Yeah. Snow on the top of the snow cap. Uh, peaks of Mount Hermon very high and far to the north. It's on the very outside edge of the boundary of David's kingdom. And as that snow melts in the spring and summer and flows down, it reaches uh, in the uh, Lake Gennareth, or you've heard of it as Galilee. And from there, goes on in the River Jordan all the way down to the Red Sea, or to the Dead Sea, to the... Uh, further to the south and uh, east of Jerusalem. The dew of Hermon coming down, flowing. You know, that, re that, that is a picture of moving water. Okay? I think of a, when I was a boy, I, I remember drinking directly from pure mountain streams, gurgling brooks, clear and crystal and cool. Got to be careful these days doing that in Colorado, but back then it was a little safer, and, and they had that too. Moving water, you see, there's something special about it. It's not stagnant, it's not in a tank or a jar. It's moving, it's flowing. Jesus referred to it, you see. By the way, the idea of water is, is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that it's moving or living is especially powerful. Jesus says on the mountain of uh, on the... Uh, well, uh, 
with the Samaritan woman while at Sychar. Um, he says, uh, if you knew who it was who asked of you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. See, not from a stagnant water in a well, but that which flows from a stream, pure and refreshing, that which pictures the Holy Spirit and uh, that mountainside of the well of Sychar was um, Gerizim, the mountain on which six of the tribes were to stand as they pronounced the blessing. The other six tribes in the time of Joshua stood on Mount Ebal facing it and pronounced the judgments of God for disobedience. So this is the mountain of blessing, figuratively. And Jesus himself would stand, uh, as recorded in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, a few chapters later, same Gospel, stand in the temple on the great day of the feast, and he would cry out. <laughs> he just didn't mumble in under his breath or teach a small group of his disciples. He cried out to all. He says, if any man believe in me, out of his innermost being shall gush forth rivers of what? living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit who was yet to come in his fullness. Living water. And that's what Christ has given you and me and us together if we're believers in him. Walk in his ways. Psalm 1 verse 3 about the man who fears the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And then in Ezekiel chapter 47, we read, well, especially uh, the vision of the temple, that the holy temple that is to come, uh, uh, especially in verse 12. Let me just find that for you. Ezekiel 47, verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. What river? The river that starts at the throne of God and flows through from the temple through the main street of the city and out into the desert and makes the desert blossom. Productive. Changes brackish and salty water into fresh. It's the living water. It represents the Holy Spirit. On fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they'll bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Oh, sounds familiar. If you've read the last book of the Bible lately, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the opening verses, Revelation chapter 20, 22 and uh, especially the uh, first two verses. John now seeing heaven open, the apostle John, and a vision of heaven, the new Jerusalem to come. And then we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Jesus went through his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying before his betrayal and drops of, uh, of blood, as sweat as it were, of blood dripping from his body. So great was his anguish. Remember this, my brother and sister. God's love for you begins in a garden. Garden of Eden. Goes through a garden. The garden of Christ's trial, of Gethsemane. And concludes in a garden. The garden by the tree, by the river of life in the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God. God's salvation is mapped out for history and for you. You rest in his hand. You couldn't be safer because he will never let you go. Let's pray.